What was Ayn Rand's distinctive assessment of so-called liberals? How did she think about such political groups? As it turns out, her critique of liberals differed fundamentally from that of the conservatives whose opposition, she thought, was worse than useless. Rand's uniquely formidable analysis of these liberals has the power to convince the active-minded. And no one today who's sympathetic to liberal positions will find a more objective, trenchant, sophisticated analysis. That's what my colleague Elon Giorno tells us in his recent article in New Ideal, Ayn Rand's devastating critique of liberals, which we'll discuss today. Uh, welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Bayer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, senior fellow, Elon Giorno. Hi, Elon. Hey, Ben. So as I mentioned, the focus of much of our discussion today is going to be uh, an article that you recently published on our online journal, uh, Ayn Rand's Devastating Critique of Liberals. Uh, anyone watching today go to bit.ly slash critique of liberals to find it or just go to newideal.einrand.org. Uh, we'll reference that again uh, at the end of the episode today along with some other resources you can learn to find out more about Ayn Rand's position on this question. But Ilan, I thought to get things started off, we should talk about what you think uh, is so important about this issue, about Ayn Rand's distinctive critique of liberals. Uh, why should either liberals or conservatives want to know more about what she had to say on this issue? I think the, the main reason is that Ayn Rand is often misunderstood. It often is maybe an understatement. I think she's routinely and uh, wholesale uh, scale misunderstood. And as a result, people are frequently categorize her in a way that she would have rejected, I think, based on her statements and her views. And it, it gives them a facile view that they, they think they know what she stood for. Oh, so she was against liberals, obviously, yes. So she's just like all these other conservatives, obviously. And I think that is a, is a gross misreading of how to think about her. She has something original and profound to say. So the main thing I was motivated here to do is to help people understand by pointing to things that she said and, and wrote about how she actually thought about this political social group in, in her time, this, the, the liberals in, in, uh, and, and what her critique actually was. So in this respect, the things I wanted to bring out and have people, whether they stand with liberals, whether they stand with conservatives, whether they're neither, uh, whether they're homeless intellectually and politically, wherever they might be on the intellectual landscape, I think it's important that they get two things about her view. One is that it's really different from anything else that's been said about liberals and particularly that has been said by conservative commentators. And this is a, a cottage industry within the conservative movement is to criticize liberals. It's been going on for, for as long as they've been conservatives who identify as such. And what is important here is I want to have people see just how different she is on this point as she is on many other fundamental points. But this is a, a, a natural one to indicate the ways in which she uh, stands apart from conservatives. And the second point, which goes along with this, is that her analysis of liberals is really profound. It is philosophical. It is not only that she disagrees with some of their policy positions, which she does, and, and, and that's a big part of what you can learn from her and the reasons she objects to them, but her objections and her critique 
is rooted in a philosophic analysis of what motivates those policies and how they approach policy and, and politics in general. So it isn't, what you will not see from Ayn Rand is, I don't like them, therefore they're bad. They're not part of what I stand for, therefore they're bad. Or they're the wrong tribe, which is often how these sorts of things are discussed. That's not, not at all the way she approaches these things. She has a philosopher's vantage point. She's, she can see things at a 30, 50,000 foot perspective and understand them to the depths of their philosophic premises. So I, I wanted to get people to see how she differs from conservative critiques and then within her own critique, just how profound it really was. Okay, so let's, let's also get clear on what exactly we're talking about here when we talk about liberals. One thing you'll notice when you read many of her uh, writings on the subject of this political group is that she puts it in scare quotes, liberals. And you do the same uh, for a time in your piece. Uh, I said so-called liberals at the beginning. Uh, what, what's the problem here with this term? And what did she find problematic or invalid about it that requires the, the distancing of the scare quotes? I mean, to, to echo her own statement on this, I mean, she thought the term liberal and the term conservative both need to be in scare quotes because her words, these are rubber words. They're empty and they don't pick out clearly anything discernible that you can you can use and think about clearly. So they're, in her view, they're, they're, um, uh, there's something evasive about both terms and that they, pollute our ability to think about the political scene. So she rejects both terms. She uses it because in a certain way, sociologically or, or in terms of the grouping of people and, and coalitions, it can be useful to point to them and they self-identify as liberals and so on. But I, I think she's careful to point out that as ideological categories, they're not very helpful because the, the groups change over time. And it's not even clear what they stand for. And that's a big part of what I tried to illuminate in the article. So one of the things that liberal used to mean, so if you go back in time, there is an understanding of, of liberal that survives in a qualified sense. And we think about classical liberalism, often that is a, a, a throwback to the 19th century when to be a liberal meant you were for individual rights as against the crown, as against or, or tyranny or authoritarianism as existed back then. And that you were for political freedom and capitalism and that fundamentally you were against the authority of some uh, king or tyrant against the individual. And so that's what liberalism or liberal used to mean a long, long, long time ago. And in Ryan's view, I think what you see in the 20th century is that really changes. And she points out, I mean, there's different, her, her view of liberals changes over time. So I'll just give high level uh, indications of this and I encourage people to go and explore her view. But her view is that there was a shift. So in the 1930s, liberal came to mean left-wing in effect. The, the, a, a whole program of reforming society that was designed to reshape the economy. Right? So if you think about the New Deal, uh, kind of reforms, like a really fundamental shift in the way the economy functions, uh, influenced strongly by socialist ideas. So that, that's what you see in the 30s. By the 1960s, when she, she's writing more about liberals, and this is the, the focus of the article I wrote, 
her analysis is that liberal has again changed. So it's, it's not even that there's a kind of ideological drive here that's explicit and committed. It's become something hidden and furtive, something secret that people don't want to talk about, but yet there's a whole agenda that they're trying to push. And the, the focus of the articles I talk about here, um, mainly it's the Kennedy administration, but this is also true. I don't really write about this, but it's also true of Lyndon Baines Johnson who, who follows. And here what, what has happened is I think she is detecting, there's a kind of uh, decay or intellectual uh, falling apart, if you will, within liberals where there isn't really a desire to have sweeping programs and, and long range vision. And the kind of things you might've seen in the 1930s where we're gonna redo whole, the whole society. We're gonna create programs that are gonna reshape the economy, that goes away. There's vestiges of that, but that, that sort of as a crusading spirit that really goes away. And what you see and what, she, what she's detecting is a kind of piecemeal, short range, incremental approach to what the agenda really is. And it's, it's, I think the distinguishing feature of it is it's shying away from having an ideological unity or kind of integration around some big ideas. And so those are kind of put into the background, they're shunted away. And that's part of her analysis of what's going wrong with liberals at the time she's writing. So I think there's this whole shift that she's detecting and I, and I try to indicate some of that uh, and I think the other thing, and this came up when we were working on this piece, so, so Ben, you the editor, you know, you know some of the conversations we have, but one of the things that came out that I thought was useful, and I tried to bring it into the piece, uh, is that, you know, you asked me the question, how do, what is the conventional understanding of liberal today and how do we differentiate it? And I indicated a bit of how that changed, but I was tempted to have the term in quotes throughout the article. <laughs> and the result was, I think, would have been really burdensome to everyone. But the important thing is that part of what this article I wrote is trying to do is to pick out a social political grouping. And this is an important differentiation, right? It's not the same thing as the set of ideas that a particular group holds at a given time. And those can change and the groups they break apart, there's new coalitions within the liberals and conservatives. So there's different, there's a lot of complexity about what you're pointing to in the world when you're talking about liberals are doing X or Y or Z. And part of what I'm trying to do in this piece is to talk about the political grouping at the time that she's writing and what, what was animating them and how did she analyze that. When you talk about liberals today, it's, it's yet a different kind of thing. There, there's continuities to it. And we can talk, I think we should talk about that later on in the conversation. But I just want to put a, a marker here that there's a lot of complexity about thinking about political groups. And she was very sensitive to this. And this is one of the things she says, and that I quote her in the article. So you have to think about them in terms of fundamentals, not derivatives, not consequences. And that's part of what I think she's doing in thinking about liberals at the time she's she's writing. So it sounds like uh, part of what you're saying is the, the political group she's analyzing in this period, early 1960s, seems like they've uh, disavowed really any kind of explicit conscious ideological commitments, uh, let alone one to liberty, which is which is what the term liberal suggests. Uh, and so that gives her good reason to want to not give, not, not dignify them with that term. And uh, that's, uh, I should note that 
it's some that's one of the things that makes her analysis distinctive because a lot of conservatives who are critical of this group continue to use the term without irony uh, as though it were a straightforward it, it had a straightforward meaning uh, and as as though it implied something self-evidently uh, negative uh, but wh why would you want to do that if you claimed to be a defender of, of liberty um, so that being said if someone's coming to this broadcast today maybe uh, they've heard of Ayn Rand in the past, but they don't know a whole lot about her, let alone her view on this subject. They probably are uh, familiar with her as some kind of anti-communist figure from the, from the 20th century. And it's certainly true that she was. Elon, can you, can you tell us more about how her anti-communist stance, uh, more of her political background, historical background, uh, how that relates to informs her view on this aspect of American politics? Well, let me answer, answer just an aspect of that. And maybe if you have thoughts you want to contribute on this. So I, I think it's accurate to say that she was an anti-communist, but I don't like the analysis or the, the, the way that she's seen as an anti-communist. Because I don't think that was essential, that was fundamental to her. I think she was an individualist as an ideal. And so she was animated by a positive, and it's too often that I read people commenting on Ayn Rand and thinking about her as, well, she was an anti-communist and she had this kinship with conservatives who are anti-communists. And, and that is not, it's not wrong. I mean, she certainly was part of groups that were trying to expose communism and infiltration of communists in Hollywood and so forth. And she, she testified about that issue and she had a lot to say on that. But I think that the big point that I think is, is being overlooked in that way of thinking about her is that she, what, animates her start to finish both as a novelist and as a philosopher and a commentator on, on our culture is that she cares about the life of the individual and that she views that as the, the beginning for thinking about political organization. What is a good society? It's one that permidual or, or, or protects, not permits, but protects the individual's freedom. And that's the standard by which you should judge other systems, other ideologies. And I think this, this fundamental individualism, this moral individualism that, she, that is a theme throughout her thinking is, I think to me, that's a really important part for understanding what it is that she's recoiling from when she thinks about the liberals of her time and even the ones from earlier in the 20th century. And I think her view, I mean, maybe you want to comment on this, but I think her view definitely changes and her, her level of engagement with political, the political scene changes over time. Uh, and I think she becomes uh, more knowledgeable, more sophisticated in her perspective. Um, but let me hand it back to you if you want to build on that. Yeah, I mean, I share your uh, dislike for simply labeling her as, a, as an anti-communist, as, as though she's simply defined by what she's opposed to, uh, as though there isn't a positive set of principles that she's working from. Uh, and I mean, one sign of this, I think, is if you look at her very early uh, political thinking, I, there, she did a, she did a uh, biographical interview in 1961, round about the same time as some of these articles you're writing, uh, that, you're, that you talk about are being written. And she reveals the surprising to some fact that in the 1932 election, the first election she voted in as a, as a citizen, she actually voted in favor of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 
Now that I, I think that's interesting for two reasons. One is that it's uh, it, it shows that she's it's not just like a knee jerk reaction she has to anybody vaguely left uh, that's that's motivating her political viewpoint. But then the other is if you look at her actual the reason that she gives for why she voted that way, it was because at the time uh, Roosevelt was opposed to prohibition, and uh, that was she saw one of the major campaign issues in 1932, and and she thought that uh, prohibition laws were uh, completely in opposition to the principle of individual rights, which is, again, the, the positive principle that she was motivated by and that she was reasoning from. Uh, now, yes, you're, you're quite right also, though, that she uh, her views change over time and she observes more. And she herself, when she's giving this interview, says she didn't see herself as a, as a keen political observer in 1932. But by the time uh, 1936 rolls around, it's, it becomes a lot clearer to her that FDR is a collectivist, uh, especially when he's trying to pack the court in order to uphold various uh, forms of New Deal uh, legislation. She's particularly, she says she's particularly concerned for his support for the National Recovery Act, which she sees as a step towards socialism. She sees his court backing attempts as an attempt to uh, undermine the separation of powers, which she thinks is a key provision of the constitution for the sake of protecting individual rights. And, and more generally, around this time, she's now, by this time, published We the Living, which is her account of life under Soviet Russia, but from the perspective of a defensive individualism, a critique of collectivism, she starts to see the reaction to her book in the culture. She notices in the, in the literary reviews of the book, this sympathy for communism, claim that uh, the author doesn't understand the Soviet experiment. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there's a clear principled stand in favor of individualism here that uh, starts that 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 is informing her eventual opposition to the people who call themselves liberals. And I should mention that even in this period, in the in the late 1930s, in these biographical interviews, she mentions that even then, even as she starts to support Republican candidates against Democrats like Roosevelt, that she still thinks that the Republican opposition is is compromising. The the Landon uh, uh, candidate uh, in 1936, she she thought he was disgusting and a mediocrity. She just thought he was uh, the only hope they had against the onslaught of New Deal collectivism in the form of Roosevelt. Um, one other sign, perhaps, of uh, why her her position here is is a, a principled one as opposed to kind of knee-jerk response to anything vaguely left is something else that you mentioned in your article, Elon. Uh, you, you open the article by mentioning that she's giving this talk, the uh, intellectual bankruptcy of our age, also in the early 60s at the Ford Hall Forum. And the primary subject of this talk is, is, is what she objects to in modern liberalism. And yet she sees her audience that shows up for the Ford Hall Forum talks as primarily liberal and that she is trying to speak to them. So tell us more about why she sees that as an audience worth reaching and, and, and how she regards uh, what she's doing. What's, what's her purpose? What I take her to be doing is to be prospecting for people who are still active minded. And that is the kind of audience she was seeking it, whether she was writing or, or addressing the public. And I think she saw that 
the labels, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, the, the labels that people apply to different social groups are not helpful in sorting what those groups are actually about intellectually, because they're, they're less and less coherent intellectually. And in fact, her view, as she says in the beginning of this essay, the, the conservatives and the, the liberals and the parties that are associated with them are converging on a lot of issues and they're hard to tell apart. And so in that sense, the, the kind of person she's trying to reach is the intellectually homeless, not homeless in the sense of they, they can't afford a home or anything like that, but just there isn't a home for someone who's active-minded and, and trying to sort through what's right and wrong politically, as opposed to just attaching themselves and adhering to some one of these factions unthinkingly in some or, or some, some uh, second-handed way or, or conventional way. I think that's the kind of person she's trying to reach. And her and she says that uh, she thinks there might be more active-minded people among the former uh, liberals, as she puts it, than conservatives. But she's not. She, it's an experiment, and she says she might be wrong, and she's willing to find out. What's interesting to me, I don't have a view of whether that was uh, uh, whether she was right or wrong at the time. But what's interesting is that she continued speaking at Ford Hall Forum for another, I think, another twenty lectures, or I think overall there are twenty lectures that she gave there, and she was. I think she had a lot of uh, respect for the forum because it allowed her a place, uh, it, it gave her a, a platform that enabled her to reach people. And it was not that they agreed with her, it's just that they thought it was good to have her voice and her ideas in a public setting and to get questions. And I think some of the best questions Ayn Rand ever engaged with are from the Fort Hall Forum. And so you can see this real um, uh, back and forth with the audience. I think that's. The sort, of, the sort of thing that she was hoping to stimulate. I did want to bring up one other thing that you, your comment reminded me, your comment about FDR and, and her view of politics reminded me of something else that I, I didn't include in the article and it, and it made me, makes me think it's worth mentioning here. There's a radio interview that she is asked about, how do you think about objectivism? Is it a, a version of conservatism? How do you think of liberals? Where do you fit? And she explains that she, objectivism is certainly not conservatism, it's very different, it's a philosophy and so forth. And asked about how she views liberals, that's where she says you have to think in terms of fundamentals. And one of the things that comes up in that conversation is that, and I think it's the same interview, uh, she says, look, on, on, and I'm paraphrasing, on narrow, very limited policy questions, there are things that she would agree with some of the liberal positions. And she gives two examples. One is abortion, which at the time liberals were for abortion. This is before Roe v. Wade was ruled, right? So this is in the, in the 60s. So abortion, she was definitely in favor for the, of that. As, and her reasoning was that it was an expression of protecting individual rights. So it should have been legal. So that's one example. And, then, and the other one was prayer in school, which was a, a much more live issue back then, which I think the conservatives were pushing. And she said on both of those delimited policy questions, she has reasons for them that coincide with the same kind of policy outcomes. So it's not to say that she endorses the reasons that liberals had for opposing both of those kinds of, or endorsing abortion and, and opposing prayer in schools. But in terms of the concrete positions, there was overlap. And I think in her view, the way to think about politics and political thought is from a principled perspective. So it, that goes to your point about her not being um, 
reacting at a knee-jerk level to this versus that, and, and I'm going to have a, a tribe here. It's a much more uh, uh, philosophical perspective where what she's animated by is a, is a principle of uh, a philosophical moral principle of individual rights and individualism more fundamentally that shapes how she thinks about groups and how she thinks about their positions. Um, so I, I think that's useful for, is for people to explore and reflect on because it's, it, again, sort of the subtext of this whole conversation is she's so different from the way people engage with politics today. <laughs> this is one of the refreshing things when you read her, her articles from this period, the way she goes about thinking about the positions that Kennedy has or the, the Johnson has or, or, or Nixon later on, it's so sophisticated compared to what you would encounter today in terms of the conversations we have around policy issues and electoral politics and so forth. You mentioned Kennedy, and uh, I think if we want to get down to brass tacks, this is a good way to do it because what she has to say about him is about as uh, distinctive and uh, provocative as anything she has to say against liberals. We used a picture of JFK for our, our promo image. Uh, he's mythic in American history. I think even today's Republicans will tend to speak of him in glowing terms. And yet, uh, at, the, at the dawn of his career, Ayn Rand thought there was something wrong and had especially devastating things to say about him. So what can you tell us about that? Rand's analysis of liberals at this time is, is that they're, they're trying to do something that is, I would say, dishonest. That They're trying to smuggle the country into a kind of political system, political economic system, they're not willing to admit that they're doing it. And they're moving the country in a certain direction incrementally, piece by piece, and in a way that you aren't supposed to see the direction, you're not supposed to notice where it's heading, but there's a certain kind of drive or push for it. And it, at, at the same time, it's they themselves are not crusading. So this is an important point that there is a drift towards what she calls a mixed economy or greater government intervention, more regulation, more welfare programs, and that this is happening in narrow, concrete, incremental piecemeal steps. And this is part of what she's objecting to. This is true of the liberals generally in her view, that, that this kind of smuggling the country towards greater statism, more welfare programs. And you raised uh, Kennedy. So I, I discuss a bit her perspective on Kennedy. And I think the, there's evidence that this is what Kennedy is sympathetic to. This is the direction he's pushing the country to. He wants more welfare programs. He was the one who I think uh, pushed forward. He didn't realize it because he, he died, but he was the one who pushed forward the idea of government funded medical care for the elderly and the indigent. And that becomes something that Johnson realizes. Kennedy is definitely on that axis of pushing us towards welfare statism. And she, she was horrified by that and she objected to it. Kennedy stood apart in an important respect because he wasn't a kind of conventional welfare status. In her analysis, and this is part of what's really shocking to people, I think, is that the kind of thing that Kennedy was driving toward is, is essentially similar to welfare status and the kind of mixed economy that um, many liberals wanted. But there was an aspect to it that she, she found to be more alarming. 
and that is it would it, all indications pointed to it resulting in this kind of system where you have the appearance of private property, you have the appearance of individual rights, you have the appearance of a free market. But in practice, the government control is so extensive that behind that veneer is essentially complete government control or effectively real and meaningful government control so that you have the, the, the facade of a free society, the facade of it being true to American principles, we have rights and so on. But in practice, you can't take a step as a business leader without getting approval. You can't take a step as an innovator unless you get government uh, green lights for it. This, this kind of system where effectively the government controls things, but we have the appearance of freedom. I mean, she, her claim, and I think it's, it's justified, her claim is that this is a fundamental feature of a fascist system. Now, as soon as you say the word fascist, a lot of people are going to have, they're going to flip out, right? Because it's it's so overused. It, it's come to the point today, at least, that it doesn't carry the kind of moral power that it used to have. But it, she means it in that sense, that it's really evil. It's destructive. And that this is the direction the country is moving towards under the Kennedy ad, uh, agenda. So let me let me add one important thing here, which is, her view is not that Kennedy is secretly sitting in a bunker somewhere wearing a brown shirt and he's really a, a kind of part of this conspiracy to move us in a way that would overthrow all the institutions of, of a free society. It's not that kind of analysis. Her view is not that we're moving toward that system through some conscious conspiracy. It's, it's nothing like that. It's more of an analysis about the way that the moral political premises and ideas animating Kennedy and other liberals, this is the direction they're leaning to. So her, the way she puts it, and I think it's important to capture it, um, the way she puts it is that this is a kind of um, fascism by default. It, it's through a kind of inertia of what these ideas are leading to. It's not a crusading fascism. It's not a, an ideologically driven or, or even the way a lot of fascist uh, movements are led by thugs or ideologues. And that's not what she's seeing with Kennedy. And, and her view is that Kennedy would probably see himself as being pro-American. And he, I think he was anti-communist explicitly. I think she recognized that. But the reality of the ideas that he's acting on would lead to a system where you end up with effective government control and the mere appearance or the mere the superficial uh, trappings of a free society, not an actually free society. Um, anyway, let me hand it back to you, but, but there's a lot to say about that issue. Well, let me ask you one follow-up question on that, because you mentioned it's the ideas behind his policies, whether they were acknowledged or not, that were pushing us in this direction. Uh, just to be clear and put this on the table, what were those ideas and, and where did you see them at work in his policy proposals. You already mentioned his uh, uh, national, uh, uh, his, his socialized medicine proposal. Were there any others? Yeah, so I, I mentioned a couple and she she writes that, it's, it's interesting how much she has to say about Kennedy. She was really exercised by his administration. A couple of others that I mentioned, I'll touch on here. So there's the, the uh, healthcare one, which in her view, 
it was preying on the benevolence of Americans and pushing them to accept something they don't fully understand, but that relies on the acceptance of uh, an altruistic premise. And in her, her view, altruism is not the way it's commonly understood. It's, it's a, a, an ethic of self-sacrifice. And that the Americans were being told that to be benevolent and caring, this is what the system needs. And in, in reality, that system is one where it's the healthcare of the elderly would be paid for by the healthcare of the non-elderly and the people who are productive and who have earned their wealth. So there's that kind of uh, phenomenon. But let me touch on the other two. One is that the Kennedy administration was intimidating broadcasters at this time. So the, the chairman of the FCC under Kennedy, and you've written about this, uh, th there was a, a, a push to, to blur the issue of censorship by the FCC. And so the, the upshot of this was the FCC was telling broadcasters or radio and TV broadcasters, that unless you put on programming that we agree, we the government agree is serving the public, ser serving the public, like this is a public service, then we will withhold and, and cancel your broadcasting licenses. So holding them ransom to a particular vision of what the public service is. This is exactly the kind of thing that I think she's talking about when you see that it's the facade of a free society. It's a facade of these being private broadcasters. But the reality is the government's telling you, you can't stay in business unless you do the kind of programming we want. Unless, and you don't really know what that looks like. So you, it's a guessing game. It's, a, it's an inevitable, um, uh, what, how would you guess? Well, you'd have to form relationships with some of the people making these decisions and try to divine their, their conception of what the public service really is. And you can't take a step until you've decided that they will approve this and not with pull the, the carpet from underneath you. So that's an example of how I think she sees this moving in a direction of greater government control. The other one is there was a uh, kind of a public crisis over the price of in, in the steel industry. And a, a big issue here was the price of steel and the cost of labor. And Kennedy, I think to, to Rand's alarm, went out of his way to excoriate the steel industry. And what he says there is, look, you, you guys can, obviously you need to have the freedom to set your prices and wages. And yes, we, we get that, but that kind of freedom comes with a responsibility. And, and in her view, that claim stood out in neon lights. I mean, there's philosophically pregnant claim. It's really significant. And she analyzes it. And her view is that this idea that the president is telling businesses that you can only act so long as there is a, uh, so long as you show a responsibility to the welfare of the country, that the whole, the way Kennedy puts it, it's a negation of what individual rights is about. It's a negation of the idea that you act in freedom as opposed to acting by permission. So here he's telling a major industry, the leaders of a major industry, he's intimidating them into this uh, position of, you can only make decisions so long as you are showing that you care about the rest of the site. And what that really means in practice is that I approve of the prices and the wages that you pay. And so on a very concrete level of how you operate your business, you need government approval. 
And so again, that's another example of where you see moving towards greater control, but with the appearance of, well, these are still private companies. They have shareholders, they have CEOs and they make decisions. But in practice, it's the, when the president says something like this, it, it's, it's not an idle statement. It's, it, it's backed by default, if not explicitly, and with an open threat, it's backed by the idea that the government can coerce you into making the decision that the government believes is in the public interest and in the welfare of the country. So I think that there's, there's more to say, but those are some significant examples of what she has in mind when she says, we're, we're drifting towards a kind of fascism by default, a kind of empty fascism that's not crusading. And yet that's the reality that it's leading us toward um, and in, in it, it's important, we should, hopefully we'll get to this point too, but that it's, that, that it's not crusading, that it's not ideologically assertive and, and vocal, I think is significant too. This, this uh, claim she makes that, that Kennedy is some kind of implicit fascist, I think is, is something that certainly raises eyebrows when people hear it for the first time. Uh, I should mention there's there's more uh, she had to say in defense of that claim. Uh, for instance, there's an article she wrote in, in September 1960, and this is before he's even elected, just while he's on the campaign trail, an article she wrote that was published in the magazine Human Events called JFK High Class Beatnik, uh, which is a provocative title in and of itself. And, and she, she analyzes uh, his uh, speech where he accepts the nomination uh, from the Democratic Party and uh, flags a number of uh, revealing statements. For instance, how he's worried about whether we can compete with the advance of the communist system. Well, how would you do that, Senator Kennedy? Uh, she talks about how he, uh, he, she quotes him directly as saying that this, uh, his new frontier uh, proposal holds out the promise of more sacrifice instead of more security. You mentioned some of that already. All, uh, everybody knows the uh, ask not uh, what your country can do for, do for you, but what can you do for your country line from his later inauguration speech. He talks about, and she quotes him as talking about how there are young men coming to power, men who are not bound by the traditions of the past, who are not blinded by the old fears and hates uh, and, and rivalries, who can cast off slogans and the old delusions, and which young men uh, on the political scene in 1960 are there to point to who are so admirable. The only ones she can think of are uh, Kasser, uh, Castro and Nasser and, and, and various dictators. Uh, he makes a big deal about the importance of leadership, but doesn't say where they're leading, where he wants to lead them to. Likewise about vigor. And the she says, anytime anyone is, is speaking about leadership, but without mentioning the direction, you should be, well, I'll, here, I'll quote her. You may be sure that you are hearing the voice of a man motivated by power lust, but it is specifically the power lust of the fascist variety. And uh, the, really the, the quote that captures the essence of her title, is this the figure of a bright man uh, or is the figure of an irresponsible young beatnik, a high class beatnik who with unlimited means at his disposal chose the power game as others chose uh, hot rod racing for kicks. And so, I mean, that kind of allegation about his his motive, I think probably has something to do with uh, a claim that you make in the article and already mentioned today about how 
not wanting to name the ideology that's actually motivating these policies uh, is a, a symptom of something, a symptom of uh, perhaps it's, it's not that he's a member of a conspiracy where they're trying to keep a secret from the public, that they're trying to keep a secret perhaps even from themselves. And that's a very unique way to analyze a, a political movement. What can you say about her understanding of that and, and about why someone would want to hide uh, a, a goal like this, a political goal from themselves? I think this is a good example of how in Rand's approach to the world, her, her philosophical framework, the role of ideas is really significant. It's fundamental in the way we, we live as human beings. And it's important as part of her analysis that we act on ideas, even whether we've chosen them consciously or not, whether they're consistent or not, whether they're true or not. And it's a responsibility of each individual to inspect their ideas and, and make them coherent and, and make them rational. But in fact, we, we all act on some philosophic premises and I think that, so as con conceptual beings, this is inevitable. You have to have some premises that you're acting on, whether you're conscious of them or not. So that's one aspect that ties it to her broader perspective on human life. And, and for that, I, I recommend people explore her essay, Philosophy Who Needs It, where she talks about the way in which philosophy is inevitable, inescapable and fundamental to human life, I should say. So that's one aspect of her view but to your question, just the aspect of why would they not want to admit this to themselves? Well, what she draws out of her analysis of Kennedy in particular is that he's predicating his policies on collectivism, the idea that the individual is subordinate to society, the wealth, the, the greater good, the welfare of, of the state, and that this goes along with, so this collectivism of putting the individual under the group and subordinating him, it goes along with this idea that the state has, the, the concentration of power should go to the state. So this is the idea that the state is, is, needs to be more in control of society. And then the, this perspective of collectivism is rooted in a moral framework, a moral uh, perspective which we touched on earlier, is the idea of altruism that she sees as the root of collectivism. And it's the idea that justifies sacrificing the individual for some allegedly higher end. And there are different justifications people give for what that end looks like. But in this case, I think we get to why it is that someone like Kennedy and other liberals don't want to admit to themselves what it is that they're acting on. Because in practice, what we see, and the evidence is, they're pushing towards collectivism. That's the, that's the nature of their policy. And that they're calling for sacrifices. So they regard that as a moral uh, ideal. But what, is, what kind of system does that actually lead to? And we've, we've talked about how in the Kennedy version, it's a kind of fascism, it's a welfare state, but where, what is the end point of that? What is the common, what, is, what does this have as is fundamental and how should one think of it? And her view is that, there's an unadmitted principle here that they're acting on. That the, the basic philosophic idea that they're acting on is unadmitted. And if they admitted it to themselves, it would be very difficult to, to, to live with because it's so ugly and inhuman and destructive. 
And that, that is the idea that you should sacrifice the individual, that that's the right way to organize society. And the individual's life is not important. And that in America, which is founded on the idea of individualism, that this is what society should look like. So, and this is part of what she's reacting to with Kennedy is how can an American president make a statement like this that is just dripping with collectivist, uh, 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 with collectivism and, and, and justifying it in those terms. And so her view is that, as I take it, is that she sees this as animating them, even if they don't tell themselves that this is what's going on, even if they're saying, and this is the part where it's important to see that they're anti-ideological. They don't want to have ideology. They don't think in terms of ideology. Kennedy in particular it has a speech that she refers to saying, well, you're all fools if you think ideas matter anymore. They don't. You need to just think about the concrete problems of the day and we're gonna have solutions for the problems of the day. And let's deal with those concrete things. But in practice, the way he reacts to concrete problems of the day is defined by a certain philosophic idea that he isn't admitting to himself, presumably, and that it's really ugly. And, and here, I, I think it's important, maybe we can put this up on screen just to, to capture some of what she's saying here. Um, let me read this just, because I think it's, it's really powerful. So she says, the liberals do not want to accept the full meaning of their goal. They want to keep all the advantages and effects of capitalism while destroying the cause, and they want to establish statism without its effects, its necessary effects. They do not want to know or to admit that they are the champions of dictatorship and slavery, so they evade the issue for fear of discovering that their goal is evil." End quote. So the, the point here is not that Kennedy or, or Johnson or, or other liberal, self-identified liberal leaders were secretly communists. That's not the point. The point is that their unadmitted principles, their unadmitted goals, I should say, the, the, pre, the philosophical premises that they were acting on lead to and justify, they're at the root of justifying the worst kinds of tyranny that the world has witnessed in the 20th century. And maybe, on a, on a larger scale. So when you think about the Soviet dictatorship, the totalitarian system built uh, in the 20th century, the USSR, when you think of communist China, as it was known then, think of Nazism and Germany, what they have in common is the same premise that is animating the kind of policies that Kennedy and Johnson are pushing, even as they're telling you that they're not ideologues, they're not pushing for any ideology. And that premise is the idea, this root premise is that the individual's life should be sacrificed to the collective, to the group, to society, to the, to the social service. Whatever the slogan is, whatever the rationalization is, ultimately this is the common root of those systems that as she puts it, they modern day forms of slavery under the communist uh, version and Nazism, there's horrific human uh, destruction. Th there's a commonality here at a deep philosophical level and that's what's animating the liberals. And they don't wanna admit it because if you follow the implications, where does that put you? What moral category does that put you as someone who even in an attenuated form is justifying the same kind of principle 
it looks different. It looks like healthcare for the aged, maybe. It looks like greater intervention in the economy. But what is the end point of that? And what fundamentally are you justifying with these incremental steps towards greater statism? And I think that's a, that is a reality that's very difficult for them to admit. This, this kind of claim that they don't want to know or to admit that they are champions of dictatorship and slavery is a part of, I imagine, what will make it surprising to many people is it's a, it's a pretty bold claim about someone else's motive. And, and to make that claim with any credibility, you'd have to have evidence. Now, you've mentioned, well, there's the fact that the premises that unite their policies would justify uh, that those kinds of practices. Uh, what more evidence is there, though? Is the, so I, I imagine this is a claim she holds to over the course of several decades, and in effect, more evidence comes in than just what you might have seen in the 1960s with the Kennedy and Johnson administration. So, uh, what further evidence comes in that she goes on herself to admit uh, to 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 examine and say, "See, I told you so." It supports this kind of claim. One brief thing to say, and then a, a larger point. So, as I said, that Johnson evinces the same kind of approach. So in fact, she has an article analyzing the Johnson administration, what she describes them as being is that they're consciously anti-ideological, that they, they, they have sort of a substitute for ideology, but in practice, this is what they're acting on. And then the, this anti-ideology, which is coinage of, her, of hers, it's a pretense so that they don't have to admit to what it is that they actually are acting on. They don't want to have to admit to it. So, I mean, and, and for people interested in that, they can take a look at her essay, Wreckage of the Consensus. I think that's really interesting analysis there. It's the place where she talks about Vietnam and the draft. But the larger point to, to answer your question, I think one of the bigger pieces of evidence on this is what she uh, talks about in regard to the new left. So this was a, a new phenomenon or an emergent faction that originated, I think they see, I think the new left saw itself as distinct from liberals, but there's clearly shared lineage, if you will, intellectually. And Ayn Rand has an essay called The Left, Old and New, where she contrasts them. And then she has another essay, uh, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, which is more uh, about the emergent environmentalist movement, but there's real significant overlap there because a lot of the new left was animated by the, the emergent ecology movement. So those are the places where she talks about them, but the, the, the key point I would highlight here is that her view of the new left is that it's not new in fundamentals. It's just continuing the same path. And what she takes that path to be is this rebellion against ideas, this anti-intellectual shift that she sees in Kennedy and Johnson, but taken to a further uh, extent to the point where the new left is doing us a service. It's, it's demonstrating the motivations without the mask of what liberals used to hold to and used to present themselves as championing. So the new left tears away the mask that liberals had which was, they associated themselves with being scientific, technological, uh, champions of reason and, and science and so forth. But that goes away with the new left. The new left, as, as she puts it, um, 
is it in a certain very very narrow sense more honest in the sense that it's willing to blurt out what was there as a motivation before and the veneer that they had goes away it's just plain collectivism unadorned and in a brutal sort of savage expression of it so it's a rejection of science and reason and what she i think the way to sort of summarize this is um, the new left activists were like the liberals before them against capitalism. They, they thought capitalism was a problem. But whereas the old left said, we were going to outdo capitalism. Socialism was going to succeed in a way that is more productive and it's, it, it, it solves all the problems that capitalism creates for itself. The new left come along and say, well, we don't need this. We don't want capitalism. We, we, they observe the fact that capitalism actually succeeds better than collectivism. And they say, well, to hell with capitalism. We don't need it. And what stays behind, what the residue is collectivism. What they really care about is the subordination of the individual to the group. And that tr that's true. And I, I have to, to share this because I think it's really powerful, this statement she has. Um, let me read this out. So the Quote, the old line Marxists used to claim that a single modern factory could produce enough shoes to provide the whole population of the world and that nothing but capitalism prevented it. When they discovered the facts of reality involved, they declared that going barefoot is superior to wearing shoes. And this is, this is the way in which she thinks the new left as heirs and products of the leftist liberal tradition or, or, or groupings, she sees them as revealing the truth of their motives more blatantly. Um, they don't want to uh, take over the industrial plants the way the old Marxists used to be. They don't want to overtake. They just want to destroy technology. They want to move away from freedom. They want to move away from progress. And that what this reveals is just in concentrated form, the motive that she sees as animating them both, which is this idea of this ethic of altruism, this ethic of sacrifice. And here, I think, what the new left reveals in really vivid terms is not sacrifice for future generations. It's not sacrifice for the proletariat. It's not sacrifice for some supposed higher end that you could point to in some distant future none of us will live to see. It's sacrifice for its as a way of life. It, it's just, that's the goal. And this is part of what, to go to, back to your question about why would someone not want to admit this to themselves? Well, if, if what you're, political agenda is predicated on is the idea that sacrifice is what is essential to human life. And that means destroying people's independence, their, their attempts to succeed in life, their, their desire for prosperity and their desire for happiness. If you're telling people all of that is trash, we're going to destroy that. We're going to prevent you from pursuing it because the collective comes first. Well, is there a more inhuman goal than that? To tell people that success and happiness are not only not to be reached, you're forbidden from doing that. And we're going to prevent you from doing that. We're going to hamstring you. We're going to, we're going to shackle you so that you cannot even set off on that path. And I think that's the root of what she's objecting to. This is, it's, a, it's a moral perspective that is itself immoral. It's, it's inhuman. It's destructive of human life. So I want to eventually, before we end uh, the episode today, talk about how some of these ideas apply to the current political scene. But before 
I do that. Can you can you summarize in a in a, in a kind of capsule statement? What is the essence of Ayn Rand's devastating critique of the uh, left liberal camp? I think that she regards the liberals of her time as animated by an immoral goal. Their ideas are evil and that they're unwilling to admit it and that that leads them to greater disintegration. That's, that's the part that you see with the new left. So it's there, she, she doesn't regard them all as communists and socialists. She regards them as what they are, which is liberals with a certain distinctive agenda. But the essence of what they're pushing for is a, is, is a shared root with those evil systems and it's evil ideas that lead to destructive consequences. And, and I think that's sort of the, the gist of what is going on here. That's the, the point I try to bring out. So what can we do with these insights? How, how would you look at the people that maybe if they do still call themselves liberals today, uh, how are we to understand them? Or are the people who call themselves liberals today uh, different from the ones she was analyzing? And if, uh, if so, who are the people, what, who are the descendants of the ones that she was analyzing today? Yeah, so we're, we're let's, I want to just emphasize, we're now shifting away from talking about her view of liberals and, and drawing lessons from that and applying her philosophic framework to the, the present. So I just want to make that a, a clear uh, point of departure. Who are the liberals today? I think that both camps have changed considerably since the time she was writing about them, both the conservatives and the liberals. And they've changed in a way that I think in both cases, they've gotten worse. Uh, and, in, and in the trajectory that I think she predicted, they would go get worse. So in both cases, I think they've become more anti-intellectual, <clears throat> which she identified as true of both of them. In the case of the liberals, it's because they, they won't admit to what they're animated by. And that kind of evasion is destructive intellectually. It just leads you to more to resent ideas and resent facts and not want to deal with them. Just as a sidebar on what she said about conservatives as moving towards anti-intellectuals. And I think the, a big piece of evidence of that was the fact that there was a growing religious element in conservatism in the 1960s. And then she points to that in the 19, uh, early 1980s when she's commenting on them again. I think that trajectory remains a salient part of what conservatism is about. And it's, it, arguably it's, it's the leading element today. It's become really dominant among conservatives. And I regard that as anti-intellectual. I mean, I don't think you can talk seriously about religion as a source of ideas to shape human life. I mean, I think there's been enough said about that in other contexts, but I regard that as a kind of anti-intellectualism. Both of the, and just to, to pull these back together, both of these, I think, both of these social groups, political groups, or camps maybe is a better term, their anti-intellectualism manifests in part by their tribalism, by the idea that to be a conservative is a kind of identity and that you belong to a group. And what matters is not your judgment, but what the group has agreed or, or what the uh, elders or the authorities in this group have deemed to be 
the beliefs that you hold. You get ready-made off-the-shelf beliefs, and that's what you stick to, and you stick to it regardless of your judgment, regardless of the fact. And you see this as it's not uniform across every person who identifies as, as a conservative or liberal today. I don't think that's true. But I think when you look at it from the other side of it, is it a dominant feature of both camps? Yes, I think it, it's become very salient in both sides uh, and in other groups too. I don't, I don't want to suggest that these are the only groups, but it's highly tribal. And this is, I think, exactly what you would expect based on the analysis that she gives of both uh, from decades ago. Uh, so I, I find it highly useful to understand these groups based on this sort of trajectory and that when you ask what ideas animate them now, which is the question she's asking in the 1960s, what is the fundamental here? There isn't much to point to, and that's the scary part. It, it's scary to have ostensibly ideological political groupings that are empty, that are they're vacuous intellectually, and that what takes its place is, I think, emotionalism and, and various manifestations that that takes through tribal behavior. Uh, that isn't a path forward, I think, for a free society. In fact, it's, it, both of those are pressures towards greater control and, and the, the further destruction of freedom. And one thing I would note about uh, politics today is that the, the descendants of the, the liberals she was critiquing in the 1960s that is the people who today run the Democratic Party or are activists for the Democratic Party, more often don't even call themselves liberals anymore. It's, it's a term that is both a term of aspersion by conservatives, but, but also by uh, so-called progressives uh, that, uh, if if liberalism meant anything in the mid 20th century it it meant the people on the left who at least had some kind of nominal uh rhetoric in favor of freedom usually it was freedom of speech as late as the 1970s in rand's analysis the the she she had critiqued the liberals about many things but said well at least they stand up for freedom of speech in, in the Supreme Court in a way that uh, conservatives don't. But uh, today, that is no longer the case, uh, at least among uh, you know, the, the vast majority of the most influential members of the Democratic Party. Uh, they're not defenders of free speech. They call for regulations uh, on social media. They call for regulations on speech on campus. And I mean, that and they don't call them, they don't even call themselves liberals, which to me, is the uh, illustrates the further folly of uh, conservatives who continue to use that as the as the term of aspersion uh, for the left. You you also have more on the left who are simply outright identifying themselves as socialists, like AOC and uh, Bernie Sanders, among among an increasing number of others. And so, to the same ex in the same way that the uh, the members of the new left were perhaps evidence that Ayn Rand would have pointed to to say, I told you so, these people aren't really in favor of liberty. I think it's even more obvious uh, today. 
I just want to add to so, that, Ben, just one quick thing. So liberalism or liberal survives in a verse sort of way today. When you look to factions within conservatism who describe themselves as illiberal and, and, and some of them proudly so. And their idea is that liberalism destroyed this society. We're going to be illiberal. And it, when you zoom out and you think in terms of fundamentals, what you're saying is that freedom is the problem. And the solution is greater authoritarianism. So it's a, it's a kind of flip of where things stood in the 19th century when liberal was a, a term to describe the advocates of individual rights and individualism more broadly. Now it's, we're done with that. And the people who are, would, you might expect to be on the side of those ideals are not on the side of those ideas and they're consciously opposed to them because they regard them as destructive of, of society. So it's, it's interesting to think about the way these labels have moved around and what they're trying to point to and what it is that people, uh, how confusing it has become. So to say back in the 1960s that these are rubber terms, they can mean anything to anyone, they're helpful for evading what you're trying to do. It's really scrambled the intellectual scene today. So I want to end with one final question about our purpose in commenting on these kinds of issues in the way that we do uh, that relates to Ayn Rand's purpose, because as, as we already discussed, one of the things that's notable about the way she uh, makes her opening salvo in, in the early 60s against liberals is by saying, I'm giving this speech to an audience of liberals and I'm speaking to the men of the intellect wherever such may still be found. And Ilan, maybe you could tell us more about who did you write your article for and who are you trying to reach with it? And, and more generally, uh, how does this relate to ARI's goals in the audiences that it's looking for? My goal was to reach the same kind of person who is active-minded, who feels that there's something off with the existing camps. They're not hospitable to an independent-minded person who wants to figure things out on their own, who cares about the truth. I think that what's crucial in life and what's important to our profession as intellectuals is the truth is the central thing that you're concerned about. It's not which camp you're in. If, if that's your orientation, something's gone off with your thinking. If, if your camp versus their camp is the first question you're asking, that's not the right question. The right question is, what's true? How do I know it? How do I explain it to people? What's important in life? What's good, which is an aspect of what's true? And that, to me, is the most important issue. When I, when I meet people and I go to talks or I, I interact with people, what I'm interested in is not, oh, where, where did, how did you vote? I mean, maybe I'll ask them that if it comes up, but that's not the interesting thing to me. Or, or which, are, do you think of yourself as a liberal or conservative? I'm interested in what they believe and why. What ideas do they think are true and how do they get to those ideas? And the labels, they're just so horrendously confusing and, and not helpful in any way. That I, don't, I, I almost always don't use them unless I have to, in which case I try to explain what it is I'm pointing to. But... There, I think there are people who are intellectually homeless today, even maybe more than there were in the past, just because it's easier to find um, new perspectives on issues. And I think 
uh, there's been growth in the interest in Ayn Rand. I think there's more people gravitating to her because they find there's something interesting here. So I'm trying to reach the same kind of audience. And I think that's what Ayn Rand was trying to do. And that's what the Institute is trying to do. We're trying to reach people who are open to new ideas, who are willing to think through uh, what's true and what's good, and to do it first-handedly, to step away from the kind of conventional thinking that I think bogs us down if we let it seep into our thinking. And worse than that, I mean, I think it, it, what we're living in is a, an increasingly tribal society. And tribalism is the enemy of independent thought. I mean, it's, it's the exact opposite of what you need. And my hope is that you asked more concretely, am I, I think I took your point to be, am I trying to reach better liberals and, and better conservatives? In a way, yes, but I, my hope is that I'm, I'm reaching anyone wherever they're starting off from, wherever they think of themselves, and encouraging them to think more deeply about what they believe. Because I think what I took away from revisiting these essays from Rand and thinking more deeply about what she's arguing is that this is the crucial issue. The crucial issue, I mean, it reaffirmed for me the point she makes in other places, which is it's the ideas that we believe that matter and shape our actions. And we need to be careful about what we accept. We need to integrate our ideas and make sure they're true, make sure they're grounded in fact. And this is what she says, I think, to her audience is that if you really are concerned with the truth and freedom, which is a value, rethink what you believe and then decide what's true and then advocate for it. And I think it's secondary or maybe even third or fourth consideration. Is there a camp <laughs> that you should belong to? In which case it should be organized based on consciously held ideas, not through the accident of faction or tribe or any other kind of non-essential feature, which is the way a lot of what's happening today uh, is occurring. So my hope is to amplify her message in effect and, and try to reach people wherever they are, if they're willing to rethink some of the fundamental ideas that we're all surrounded by. Well, thank you for that, Ilan, and thank you for the article. Let's start to wrap up by reminding our viewers again where they can find that article and, and where they can see other resources relevant to this topic. So again, we've been talking today about uh, Ilan Giorno's article, Ayn Rand's Devastating Critique of Liberals, which was published uh, a couple of weeks ago on New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. You can get that by going to newideal.einrand.org or for a short link that takes you right to the article, bit.ly slash critique of liberals. Many of the sources that Elon draws on in this article are some of Ayn Rand's major commentary articles from her periodicals in the 1960s through to the early 70s. There is, for instance, the intellectual bankruptcy of our age in 1962. That was the opening salvo uh, against liberals, but speaking to liberals at the Ford Hall Forum. There was the new fascism rule by consensus. This is an analysis along with the next piece, the wreckage of the consensus of policies of the, uh, the Johnson administration in the wake of JFK. Uh, Ayn Rand also, we quoted a, a passage from her essay, Conservatism and Obituary. There we were quoting from what she had to say against liberals, but what she does in this article more generally is talk about why conservatives of the period were not efficacious in their opposition to the statist collectivism of the liberals. You can find out more by looking at that essay, which is reprinted in Capitalism and the Ideal. Uh, 
also the new left, the, the, the left, old and new, uh, which is in Return of the Primitive, that's where you get that unmasking. Uh, she describes the unmasking of the left where the motives that she thinks have been at work for many years uh, become uh, more explicit out in the open. So while we're on the subject of politics, I'll mention that we're going to be talking next week on uh, the next episode of New Ideal Live about another political movement that Ayn Rand was also very critical of, the libertarian movement, the movement that's often confused with Ayn Rand's views, but she was also vocal critic of the libertarians. And we'll be bringing this one up to date by looking to see what uh, recent libertarians have had to say to apologize for the government of Vladimir Putin in Russia. This will be a presentation by Nikos Satyrkopoulos, uh, one of our resident scholars. So if you enjoyed this episode of uh, New Idea Live, you're, you'd like to follow us in the future, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Please click that bell button if you'd like to get notifications when we post new content or when we go live. If you're watching a recording of this, please share it with your friends, Please like it, please comment on it. That helps uh, optimize the algorithm in our favor. Same thing if you're watching on Facebook Live. And I should also mention that uh, if you have questions or comments about things that came up in today's episode, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email uh, to newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in. We try to answer as many emails as we can. If we don't uh, raise it in a new episode, I, I recently completed a whole batch of these. I hope everybody who sent questions got answers. Uh, and otherwise, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ilan, for uh, this article and for your further elaboration on it. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.